Part 1, Chapter 6 of The Uttermost Star. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by G. Carlson. The Uttermost Star and Other Gleams of Fancy by Frank W. Borum. The Whaler. Whales are great sport. We have all done a little whaling in our time. I shall never forget the months that I spent amongst lances, harpoons, reels, lines, and blubber. There is no accounting for the vagaries of the law of association, and oddly enough, I cannot even think about whales without harking back to a certain lofty haystack that stood not very far from my old English home. I remember, as vividly as though it were but yesterday, that I had spent a good part of one memorable winter curled up in my father's spacious armchair, reading all that R. M. Ballantyne, Maine Reed, and Fenimore Cooper could tell me about red Indians and grizzly bears. Now, red Indians and grizzly bears are first-rate, as every schoolboy knows, but you can have too much of even a good thing, and, by the time that the fields were once more golden with buttercups, my familiarity with the furry wigwams and the Rocky Mountains had engendered a inevitable contempt. I had seen enough of the scalps of the braves and the skins of the bears to last me for many a long day, and it was at this critical juncture that a whaling story fell into my hands. It swept me off my feet, it took my soul by storm, captivated my whole imagination. I begged, borrowed, or bought all the tales of whaling adventure that were anywhere procurable. And whenever, in the perusal of those thrilling pages, I heard from the crow's nest the rousing cry of, There she spouts! I crept stealthily off to the haystack, and, sprawling at full length, enjoyed, without interruption, the terrific excitements of the chase. My prone body sank of its own weight into the soft and odorous hay, rendering me quite invisible, and in this safe retreat I was dead to all the world, and all the world was dead to me. How many times on that old haystack I watched the huge monster describe his vast circles round the ship. How many times I held my breath as he suddenly appeared, a tense mass of quivering rage, within a few yards of the boat. How many times I saw the glittering harpoon bury itself in his soft, hot flesh, and heard the shriek of the rushing line as it flew from the whirring wheel. How many times I found myself swimming for dear life after the infuriated creature had smashed our little boat to splinters. How often, too, I felt my cheeks flush with the fierce joy of capture and could scarcely believe my eyes when I looked round and discovered that, instead of being on the oily deck of a whaler, I was lying full length on the top of a haystack. Part 2 But how am I to account for this strange gust of recollection? It was my Bible that started it. At the opening of Job's penultimate chapter, I came abruptly on a question that first made me smile, and then made me think, Canst thou catch a whale with a fish-hook? If I, as an old whaler, understand the position rightly, it is designed by this grotesque interrogation 
to expose some very common fallacies. There is, for example, the folly of supposing that a whale can be caught with a fish hook. Every whaler knows quite well that it is ludicrously impossible. As an old whaler, I can bear witness to the fact that the experience of life has taught me that there must be a certain proportion between the ends that you hope to compass and the means that you employ in order to attain it. I have caught a minnow with a bent pin and a yard of string, but I have never been able to land a salmon with that gear. In Job, the argument is pushed yet another step. To him, the capture of a whale seemed a sheer impossibility. The ancients saw the huge beast disporting itself in the blue waters, but in their wildest imaginations they had never dreamed that a day would come in which men would seek to make him their prey. And indeed, it was not until about a thousand years ago that some hardy Norsemen, of tough sinews and still tougher soul, conceived the idea of scouring the seas in pursuit of such big game. Job may have listened in awe to tales that sailors told concerning the frightful monsters they had seen upon the deep, and, if so, he was prepared for the question, Canst thou catch a whale with a fish hook? You can catch a minnow with a bent pin, but not a salmon. You can catch a salmon with a hook, but not a whale. Old Peggy Dodson runs a flower stall. For many a long year she has stood, summer and winter, at the corner of Princess and Edgecumbe streets, just against Barnard's great drapery store. Her violets and jonquils are said to be the best that can be got, and many of the great ladies who come in and out of Barnard slip a big bunch of them into their motors before setting out for home. Peggy only aims at making a couple pounds a week just to keep body and soul together, and she contrives to do it by the investment of a very modest capital. But Barnard's would not be content with a profit of a couple pounds a week. Mr. Edward Barnard lives in a palatial residence out at Brockville Park. To keep things going, he needs a profit a hundred times as large as Peggy's. And because he wishes to draw a hundred times as much out of his business, he puts a hundred times as much into his business. The sum he pays out every week in rent, wages, and stock is amazing. But he signs those checks with a light heart, because he knows that, by a law that is as fixed as the law of gravitation, there must be a certain proportion between the ends that you desire to compass and the means you employ to attain it. You can't earn Barnard's profits by the investment of Peggy's capital. You can't catch whales with fish hooks. Many years ago, I knew two sisters who were both Sunday school teachers. Sheila was a lively girl, and everybody was very fond of her, but she rarely took things seriously. On Sunday, as soon as dinner was over, she got her Bible and her teacher's helps to see what the lesson was all about, and then, marking a few passages that she thought might be read aloud to the scholars, she dotted down a few notes before scampering off to school. Sometimes, when dinner was late, or the conversation at the table was particularly interesting and protracted. She was compelled to study the lesson as she hurried down the streets, sometimes in company. Mary, on the other hand, regarded her class as part of life's great adventure. She allowed the coming Sunday's lesson to simmer in her mind all through the week, and found untold delight in wrestling with the various problems it presented. 
She was a welcome guest in the homes of all her boys, and if one of them failed to appear on the Sunday afternoon, Mary was like a hen with a missing chick. She even wove those roguish faces into her prayers, and, indeed, found it easier to admit them than to exclude them. Anybody who knew the two sisters as intimately as I did could see that Sheila was like old Peggy, whilst Mary was like Mr. Barnard. Sheila put very little into her class, and drew very little out. Mary lavished all her thought and devotion upon it, and found in it the delight of her life. I have met many of those boys, now full-grown men, during the past twenty years. It is with difficulty that you can recall Sheila to the remembrance of those who once sat at her feet. She flitted into their lives and flitted out again without leaving any permanent impression at all. But Mary's boys brightened at the very mention of her name. Whenever I had been tempted to do a mean thing or to neglect a duty, one of them said to me not long ago, I have thought of her, and the memory of her face has settled it. And he spoke for them all. Sheila was angling with a piece of string and a bent pin. Mary was catching whales. A mere novice in the art of living must have noticed that only the cheap prizes are cheaply won, and the really precious things of life come to us through blood, agony, and tears. And is not the kingdom of heaven to be numbered among those exceedingly precious things? Is it likely, therefore, that the kingdom of heaven can be cheaply gained? Just put up your hand now, while every head is bowed. Put up your hand, and the great transaction's done. I was passing the Miller's Point Mission Hall. A stirring chorus led me to pause, and after the singing, these words fell upon my ear. It is not for me to judge. I had not listened to the address that had preceded this appeal. But, taken by themselves, the words seemed to imply that the salvation of the soul can be very cheaply secured. When I reached home, I took down my Pilgrim's Progress, and reviewed afresh Christian's sustained and perilous exploit. And then I turned to the New Testament. The transition from the Evangelist's appeal to these noble volumes on my table was like the transition from the angler's dangling line to the stern and hazardous struggle of the whaler. For my New Testament warns me on every page that whales are not to be caught with fishhooks. Gold does not lie about on the street corners. The kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by storm. I am to strive, wrestle, to agonize in my resolute and persistent endeavor to enter in at the straight gate. Only through much tribulation, so I am told, can I hope to enter the kingdom. The New Testament writers were whalers, not anglers. Their phraseology is the phraseology of the fierce and desperate conflict. It throbs with vehemence and intensity. It is suggestive of long and anxious and sustained adventure. And who can help noticing that when it tells of one who set his face, like a flint, to win the greatest prize of all, it makes it clear that he only attained his end and finished his work and gained his crown after a struggle unparalleled in the annals of human enterprise and achievement. Part 3 it is foolish to match the mean against the mighty. The contrast between the whale on the one hand and the angler's puny little line on the other 
is intended to provoke a smile. I should have loved to seen old Isaac Walton's face when, in the course of his Riverside devotions, he lit upon this passage. How could Job angle for a whale? As the following verses point out, he has no bait wherewith to deceive him, no hook wherewith to catch him, no line wherewith to draw him out of the water, no reed to run through his gills, and no thorn on which to carry him home. The whole conception is extraordinary, whimsical, grotesque. It is the way fighting against the cliff, the mouse fighting against the lion, the pygmy fighting against the giant. What does it all mean? If good old Isaac Walton, resting under the alders of the green banks of the Itchen or the Dove, examined the context in order to ascertain the meaning of the curious inquiry, he must have found himself suddenly and startlingly transported from the realm of the ludicrous to the realm of the sublime. For see, then answered the Lord unto Job out of the whirlwind, and said, Canst thou catch a whale with a fish-hook, or his tongue with a line that thou lettest down? None is so fierce that dare stir him up. Who then is able to stand against me? Here is a swift transition from comedy to tragedy. At the beginning of the drama, Job loses his asses, his oxen, his camels, his children, and his health. In the course of the years, Job is tempted to murmur against God and to impeach the justice of the Most High. And this is the answer that comes to him out of the whirlwind. Canst thou catch a whale with a fishhook? How then canst thou stand against me? And Job humbles himself and kisses the hand that he has spurned, and the great drama closes amidst the tears and smiles of the reconciliation. At the opening and at the close of the inspired records I find two brave heroic figures. In one respect, these two, Job and Paul, are very much alike. The culminating point in the experience of Job was his discovery that his rebellion against the divine will was as futile and as foolish as the fishing line with which the angler might endeavor to compass the destruction of a whale. The culminating point in the experience of Paul was his discovery that his persecution of the infant church was arrayed upon omnipotence. And he fell unto earth, and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against these pricks. And, like Job, Paul abandoned the unequal contest, and kissed the hand that he had sought to crucify. How canst thou stand against me? said the voice to Job. Why persecutest thou me? said the voice to Paul. And Job and Paul both discovered that the day on which a man submits his stubborn heart to the will of heaven is the day on which all heaven comes pouring into that penitent and contrite heart. End of Part 3, Chapter 6